Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Two weeks ago, I started a new series entitled Love, Good News to Believe in Jesus for Eternal Life. And this series is based on the Gospel of John. And the reason it's titled Love is what I talked about in the first sermon because it is written by the disciple who was known as the beloved, John. He was loved greatly by God and that love moved him to do something so other people could know about the one that he was so loved. And so he wrote a letter of love known as the gospel, a gospel account of God's love come to us in Jesus Christ that he might, as an expression of writing that, he wrote, so we can believe, he says, so that we might understand we can, in the gospel, become the beloved of God. This whole gospel is just love dripping all over everything. And I hope that that's what it provides for us as we study through it each and every week. So today we're going to go to verse 19 and we're going to work through about verse 42. I don't know, I'll try to stop in this uh, service at the same point I stopped at in the last service, but uh, you're only going to get about two-thirds of a sermon, but don't get excited because it'll still take as long as a, a full sermon. I, mean, I want you to get excited about the sermon, just anyway. Let me read for us uh, from some verses, first of all. I want to read verses 35 to 42, which I really believe capture the essence of what we're going to be talking about today in the call of a real Christ follower. John chapter 1, verse 35 reads, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. The call of a real Christ Follower. John begins his account in this gospel by exalting Christ in the first 18 verses. It's a hymn, basically. It's a, it's a poem written just to revel in the excellencies of the one who is the Christ, who is God himself sent to us to save us. And when we begin in verse 19 and move forward in John, here's what we're going to see. We are going to see Jesus living out the last thing he will say to us before he ascends into heaven, known as the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. So from the very beginning of his public ministry, he begins to demonstrate through his life what he will speak through his words in commissioning us through the Great Commission. And that's what I want to see today. I want you to see that the call of a Christ follower, that the call of Christ, rather, leads people to become his followers that make other Christ followers. 
The call of Christ comes upon his people to follow him and to make other Christ followers. That's the essence of Christianity. And I think this is so critical for us to understand because in our day today, in, in what I would consider the de-churched of our cultural context, the de-churched are not people who've never been in church. They're the people who've been there. They have the t-shirts stored from everything that they've done with the church and they've moved on beyond it because it's lost its familiarity to them because they become captured by other things and the church no longer holds its allure. That's what researchers call the de-churched. For the de-church today, I believe that people become convinced the church is no longer applicable for them or relevant to them because their definition of Christianity is less than what the scripture actually records about it. That's my premise. I don't know. I, I may be wrong. But right now, I'm deeply convinced of that. have been for years. And um, I think that's the culture into which I preach every week. Those who are so familiar with what they call the Bible, and I'll hopefully next week bring some evidence from research that shows that. I want to show you today, though, three essentials. Three essentials to help us understand this call of a Christ follower. And I said you're only going to get two-thirds of a sermon today because you're only going to get two of the three essentials. You must come back next week. You cannot miss next week. And we are taking attendance right now. We have your face scanned on computer. We know who you are. We will find you if you're not. I'm just kidding. We do want you to come back next week. Here's the first essential I want you to see from this passage of Scripture. That the call of a real Christ follower begins with a faithful Jesus-centered testimony. The call of a Christ follower begins with a faithful Jesus-centered testimony testimony. You see, John begins in this passage, verse 19, with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, I'm going to be talking about John the Baptist for the next few moments, so don't confuse him with John, the one who wrote this gospel account. Two different people, okay? And he explains John the Baptist's ministry and the role that it played to identify Jesus as the Christ. You see, the role of John the Baptist's ministry was to point people to Jesus because even prior to Jesus' coming in flesh and blood, people had gotten distracted about who he was and why he had come. And so in verse 19, we see that John the Baptist is ministering and this group of Pharisees, religious leaders, essentially come to John the Baptist and they go, what are you doing? And in their questions of why are you baptizing, essentially, uh, or literally is what they were asking, but what they wanted to know is what are you doing because you're treading on our ground, is what they were saying. You know, those questions that get asked of us in life that say more to us than really desire something from us. And these are the same people who would begin to accuse Jesus later in his own ministry. But because they were threatened by John the Baptist and their religious institution was not being everything for everyone or everyone was not bowing to it the way they wanted to. John the Baptist's message came on the scene. Many were following him and listening to his preaching. And the religious leaders got really nervous and upset about this. And so they began to confront him. And that's where we pick this up. 
in verse 19. And in verse 23, what John the Baptist does is he clarifies what his ministry was all about. And this is so helpful. He says this, that I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Does that verse sound familiar to you? We just read it between songs a while ago. It's actually the prophecy of Isaiah himself in chapter 40, beginning in verse 3, where he prophesies that one will come from the, a voice will cry out in the wilderness. What do we know about John the Baptist? Well, he had phenomenal style of clothing, camel's hair, right? I mean, that's good stuff today. And he ate locust and honey. So he was like the original organic man. But we know that he was kind of one of those people set way apart. He lived highly distinctive from society and the typical norms of that day. Because he was the one that fulfilled the prophecy that a voice of one crying out in the wilderness would come. He understood this about his own life. And he said, the one who's called me is the one who has told me to proclaim this. And here's what he proclaimed. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's his own testimony. So here's what he was saying. He was saying, God's using me to cut a path to prepare for the exalted Christ to enter in on. And it was a path of message. It was a path of communication. So John the Baptist had a clear understanding about his life, his purpose, and his role. And friends, for us, when we see the life of John the Baptist, we shouldn't just say we want to be like John, but one of the things that we should say is that our faithfulness to God begins with a very clear understanding of his call upon our life and his purpose for our life in order that we might be able to look at all of life and reject the wrong positions, the wrong holdings of power, and the wrong platforms that the world would try to put on us or try to put us on. We are a world that loves to enthrone people called pop culture. And we are a world that loves to put on people what we're looking for so often. And what John the Baptist tells us in his life and in his ministry as one of the most clarifying releases that we can have in this life is to understand God's call and God's purpose on our life so that we can say no to everything that doesn't find its place in that call and purpose, that we might say yes to being singularly focused on that purpose for our life. That's what he reminds us. And so Christ followers must remember this, that we are called by God to serve his kingdom purpose in this word in this world but this word call that I keep using what does it mean because some of you have come to a point in your life especially if you've been in church for a while if you haven't been in church you might think I'm just trying to subliminally tell you to turn your phone off don't let it ring or he might point me out right that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is this this understanding of God calling us what is that? Some of you have been around church for a while. You think it's just for like vocational pastors or ministers. Well, that's what happens when God catches you and makes you serve as a minister. Man, whew, I've avoided that so far in my life. My point today is this. There's not a person alive who is saved by Jesus Christ by faith that is not, hear me, called by God. And so I want to define this word called for us so we can have a common understanding through a common definition. Are you ready? 
Called simply means this. It is an internal, internal unction of the Holy Spirit, a moving, a stirring, however you might understand that. It's an internal unction that God's Spirit puts within us that in our seeing of external invitation, and you might also use that word invitation as opportunity, I think you could substitute those, so that when we see the kingdom of God's work happening in the world around us, we consider that because of our internal unction an external opportunity or invitation, and we step into that with our whole lives, by the giftings and by the way that God's created us and designed us and our understanding, all of who we are and what God's created and redeemed in us, we walk into that invitation to join God in his work to bring a faithful demonstration of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be called by God. An internal unction, the Spirit of God working in us because we have a new heart in Jesus Christ. He is alive in us, leading us in God's work that sees the work of God in the world, that sees what the gospel looks like where the gospel may be absent, that sees what the gospel looks like when you can encourage it and bring a Jesus focus to it. So wherever you are, wherever you're at tomorrow morning, I'm telling you, you're not at a place where God's not working. God is sovereign over all of creation. He's always at work And Christians are people who are called to see that work of God and step into it with their lives that a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ might be made known in that place. That's what I'm talking about when I use the word call. And that's what I believe scripture tells us. You see, let me define it a little different way. This might help some of us. That when we step into that call with our lives to be a faithful demonstration of Christ and a witness for him, In that moment, in that situation, with those people, we are seekers of light where darkness rules. We are seekers of truth where deception is is ruling. We are seekers of the things of God, of beauty. We are seekers of glory. And we, through self-denial, we, through sacrifice, and sometimes even through suffering, in the midst of seeking these things that are from God alone, We are experiencing within us an ever-increasing confidence, an ever-increasing joy, an ever-increasing love, an ever-increasing peace with God, a sure confidence, a conviction, and an understanding of how God is using us in that place and in that time. So that's what I want us to see today, that, that the call of God that comes to us through Christ Jesus is upon every Christian's life that we might follow him in his work and he might use our lives to make more Christ followers. I don't care where you're headed this afternoon or tomorrow. God's already working there. And when you get there, unless you're running from him, and I'm telling you, he's waiting on you there too. Jonah tells us that, right? God wants to use your life for his will and his purpose. When Christians live in such a way to bear this faithful testimony that we're seeing through the life of John the Baptist and the others, the call of Jesus Christ streams through their life like music streaming into your life through your iPod or through your satellite radio or whatever it may be. The call of God through Jesus Christ streams through your life so that the whole world might be able to see Christ in you. 
That's what it means to be called. Historically, or excuse me, let me back up. So John the Baptist has this strong demonstration. And why do they come to him? Well, they come to him and confront him because he's baptizing. Now, baptizing is the work of the religious people here. And when you do the things that the religious people are doing, the religious people get very uneasy when they're not doing it, right? And so what do they say? Why are you baptizing? Because that's our territory. And John the Baptist says, I am baptizing with water, but I baptize in such a way so that I would point people to the one who will come. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so John, in his understanding of his ministry, not only explains his ministry, but explains the work of his ministry to say this. Look, this is not the final baptism. This is a baptism that simply serves a purpose to point to the one who will bring the ultimate baptism, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they didn't like that because that's not what their baptism said. That's not what they meant by it. And they didn't want people distracting from him. As a matter of fact, hence the reason John is called the Baptist is because he was a baptizer. And that's how he got his nickname. Let me talk to you about baptism for just a moment because I think this is another way that we convolute the gospel so often in our day and time. Historically, baptism is not unique to Christianity. Baptism has been used by religion for many, many years throughout history. And the distinctive nature of baptizing is that baptism represents an identifying with whatever name or cause you're being baptized into. So for Christians, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we're identifying with the triune God in that water baptism. But we're not the only ones historically who have baptized. As a matter of fact, the Roman soldiers went through a baptism as a final rite of passage into the fraternity of the soldiers of that day. And what they would do is they would dig a big pit and this Number of soldiers, however many it were, would walk down into this pit at the end of all of their um, of training. And the final order was that they would sacrifice a bull over the soldiers. And as they walked through the pit of the, uh, underneath the sacrificial bull, the blood would actually drip down on the soldiers. And it was known as the centurions or the Roman soldiers' baptism into the fraternity. In other words, they were identifying with the government and giving themselves in that way. So there have been practices like baptism that historically have been used over and over in many different ways. But the distinctive nature of baptism is whose name or cause are you identifying with through that? You see, baptism holds meaning because of the message that it represents. That's what's important. And when we come to John the Baptist, we see that his was not even a final baptism, but it was representative in and of itself because he was calling people to repent. What was he calling people to repent of? Religion. John the Baptist was calling people to repent and to turn away from religion because the one who was God would come and they would enter into what? A relationship. That is the repentance that he was calling for. I want to talk to you just a little more about believer's baptism, what we here at LifePoint practice today and why. There's really two reasons that we practice believer's baptism as Christians today. The first one is this, is because baptism identifies a person with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection by 
faith. Romans chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 tell us that we are buried with Christ in baptism and we are raised to walk in the newness of life. Now what Paul is describing in that chapter in Romans is not water baptism, but he is describing what water baptism represents. And so we believe that a person identifies with Jesus in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, through the work of baptism. Baptism does not save a person. We do not hold that baptism is a mode where grace transfers from God to the person being baptized. Baptism, excuse me, does not save a person cannot save a person. There is no magical waters that can do that. Rather, it represents what God has done in saving that person within. It is a strong symbol. And so as we look at this believer's baptism, first of all, we know two things about this identifying with Jesus in baptism. First of all, only believers should be baptized. The only people that should ever walk through the waters of baptism are those who have made a personal profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of their sins. But the second thing we learn is this, that every person who makes a profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and trust in him should be baptized. And so that's what we begin to build our understanding of baptism on. Baptism serves as a believer's first act of spiritual obedience. The second thing that we understand about the meaning of baptism in believer's baptism, is that baptism serves as a person's first public testimony of the gospel. It's the way that we publicly testify of our faith in Jesus Christ. Once we identify with him in salvation, we align our lives for his kingdom, pers- uh, for his kingdom purposes. And Galatians 2.20 kind of tells us what baptism represents in aligning our lives with his kingdom purposes. When it says this, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, I want everyone to know that I am his, he is mine, that Jesus is my Savior, and that's why you get baptized. Baptized Baptism testifies that God is good, that Jesus saves, and that my life serves his kingdom in this world. So with that understanding, let me ask this, because I have a reason for this. Have you been baptized as a believer? As a believer. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about ritual. And I'm not in any way trying to discredit any kind of heritage of faith that you may have had in your past. I'm trying to help you understand by clearly speaking what we believe the scriptures teach and asking you, have you responded in faith and walked in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? If at today, if you're at a point in your life where you believe you need to be baptized, I want to invite you to contact us this week and let one of our pastors sit down with you and talk to you and help you and encourage you in this. We're going to have a baptism celebration in a few weeks, and we've got several that are going to be baptized. We would love for you to participate in that. And any way we can encourage that, we want to do that. All right, that's my words on baptism to encourage you with. And so John the Baptist clarifies his testimony through his actions. And here's what he says. 
that he must decrease so that Jesus can increase. Here's what he does. We see in the verses that we just read that Jesus walks by one day when his disciples are standing with him. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. For the second time in the scriptures, we see in just a few verses that John points at Jesus when he walks by and says, that is the Lamb of God. I don't know it on my own, but I'm telling you the one who called me is telling me that that is the Christ. And I'm here for one reason, and there he is, right there. And in that moment, John immediately begins to decrease in his influence, his significance, and his presence. And very shortly later, he'll lose his life for his testimony. But from that moment on, it tells us that two of his disciples walked away from John and began to follow Jesus That's significant, friends. That's significant because John was going to be faithful to the very end. And if his testimony was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and his desire was to decrease so Jesus could increase, which honestly, is this not what all Christians understand the Bible to teach our life is all about? In every instance, in every way, we're to make a faithful testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as people believe in him, to encourage and to help them, but not to dominate so as to let them follow Jesus and not just follow us. And that's where the call of Christ begins with us. It's where it begins with you, Christian. It's where it begins in your workplace and in your home and in your neighborhood and with your friends and with your relationship that we would, walking into these places where God wants us to be a faithful witness, we would point people to Jesus and we would encourage them to Jesus in any way that we can, but we would never get in the way of them walking with Jesus. That's what John the Baptist teaches us and that's what he demonstrates for us. Now, following Christ always centers on Jesus. That may seem obvious, but I see a lot of things that have the label of Christian on them that don't have Jesus at the center of them. And that's why I think it's important for us to say this, that John the Baptist, the one bearing testimony of Christ, was decreasing. You see, following Jesus is a process of depending less and less on other people in order to rely more and most fully on Jesus himself. That's why reading the Bible personally is important for every Christian. That's why learning to pray, and really not even learning as much as just practicing prayer, and learning will come through that, is so critical for us. Why corporate worship is important for us to be with others. Not because we're relying more fully on people, but because we're relying more fully on Christ to be used by him in the places that he puts us to be a faithful testimony where this call begins. And that's what John the Baptist does. You see, following Jesus does not mean you no longer have need of others. I'm not saying that. As a matter of fact, you move from dependence Beyond independence to interdependence, and you realize that there is a mutual sharing of lives, what we call here life together, that you might be a mutual encouragement, a mutual help, a mutual clarifying of the gospel, a mutual sharing to meet needs. In other words, there's an interdependence among the people of God where you're not dependent upon them for your growth in Christ, but rather you draw from them as they draw from you so that the whole congregation might be built up. But it's because everyone is centered on Jesus Christ.
What it means is that you take personal responsibility for your own spiritual growth and maturity to feast at the table of the king and not just off the crumbs that someone else feasting there have dropped on the floor. See, Christ followers get made when a faithful Jesus-centered testimony moves a person to center their life on him. And I tell you, friends, there will never be anything more rewarding than even if you're just in the room, but specifically and you're in the conversation when someone says, I need to put my trust in Jesus and become a Christian. In that moment, I'm telling you, you can sense the heavens split and you can see Jesus working in ways that are incomparable. It comes in so many different ways and so many different kinds of words, but it always comes through a faithful testimony that Jesus uses to bring others to himself. That's the first essential. The second essential we see here is this, that the call of a real Christ follower not only comes through a faithful Jesus-centered testimony, but it culminates in a discovery that leads to life change. It culminates in a discovery that leads to life change. We see this beginning in verse 38. When Andrew and Peter, or Simon at the moment, walk away from following John the Baptist and begin to follow Jesus. And as they begin to follow Jesus, a dialogue ensues. Jesus turns and sees them and he says this, What are you seeking? Friends, just the comparison between the Pharisees, the religious people's questions that were accusative and speculative and, 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 and created angst with them, compare that to Jesus' question that was inviting and engaging and welcoming. Jesus says, what are you seeking? And their response to him was to ask questions as well. Where are you staying? You know, at first reading, that can be a little nerve-wracking, right? Uh, I was in an Uber a couple of weeks ago with a friend. We got in the car. If you're not familiar with Uber, it's basically the rivals to taxis now. And you call for a car, they come pick you up, and you get in the car with a stranger, and hopefully they take you where you want to go, and you get out, and everything works cool, right? We get in the car, and um, it's this very nice lady who welcomes us into her car, She's giving us a ride, and the guy that's with me sitting in the front seat says, do you ever get nervous about picking people up? And I immediately said, not until this very moment. <laughs> you know, now she's nervous because you just brought it to the forefront. That's kind of like this question that they respond to Jesus with, where are you staying? Why do you want to know? That's not what they were asking, and Jesus knew that's not what they were asking. What they were asking is this, we intend to follow you wherever you go because we know who you are, we believe in you, and we will give our lives for you. That's what they're saying. We will stay where you stay. We will go where you go. We will do what you tell us to do. You see, their question said more than just seeking information. It was stating a conviction because they believed in the testimony that John the Baptist had given to them. And we see that a real disciple follows their master in all of life. I'm going to give you a little warning about where I'm headed with this. A real disciple follows their master in all of life. Would that be true as a descriptor of your relationship with Jesus. 
That's where we're headed. Jesus says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Every person, friends, that dares to follow Christ must look into their life and consider this question. Because following Jesus demands complete worship and absolute lordship. Jesus, true and only, demands complete worship and absolute lordship. You see, that's what Jesus was asking. There were so many that would follow him that wanted just something he could give them instead of recognizing who he really, truly was. And that is so common in our day today. God had made a way through Jesus to receive eternal life as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is not a bait and switch where you get the worm, but you also get hung by the hook, right? That's not what Jesus does at all. He says this, that what you most desire in your life that you could never achieve, earn, or will, you don't have to because I provide it freely for you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, describing our salvation and how it comes to us. This is not of your own doing. That's what Paul tells us. Rather, it's a gift from God. It's not a result of works. It's not an accumulation of good deeds so that no one could boast. It is simply a gift of God. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says this. And I want to read this passage with us together from Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, here's what he teaches about following him. That it has a high Cost. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, not would not, not should not, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to give two illustrations that aren't on the screen there, but they're in these passages of one who, a contractor who would dare to build a, a, a building but not consider what it's going to cost him. And so he could get halfway done and not have the money to finish. He said, you wouldn't do that. You count the cost. And that's what he's saying about our faith, about understanding what it means to follow Jesus, that we must count the cost. You see, it's not just about hating as we think of hating those others. But that word for hate, there's a strong word that simply says this. Not even the people who are closest to you in your life can be greater for you than Jesus. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, so often people think if I become a Christian, God's going to want my pocketbook. So they, they think becoming a Christian means pulling their pocketbook out and laying it on the altar. Others say, well, it's really about time. And, and they take their calendar and they go, if I become a Christian, I have, to, I have to give God all my time. There's my calendar. Or maybe it's schedule or priorities that are represented through that calendar. 
Or they think of, okay, if, if I become a Christian, I have to give this or I have to give that. No. You see, what Jesus is saying this is simply this. If you're going to follow me, just get on the altar. Count the cost, friends. Salvation and discipleship are not separate entities. Well, I want to become a Christian, but I'm not going to mess with that discipleship stuff or, 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 or some other form that we've subdivided in it today. L- listen to this. Discipleship rectifies what salvation clarifies. That word for rectify, it means to set it right by assignment, alignment, or calculation. See, what discipleship does is it aligns our life to the one who has saved us. And here is what salvation clarifies for us. That I am his and he is mine. And friends, the remainder of your life as a Christian, is about making the right calculations at the right moment so that nothing other than Christ ever gets to the center of your life. You are continually reorienting your affections, your afflictions, your adorations, your attitudes, your desires. Everything is continually recalibrated in discipleship and following Jesus so that he is the center. You see, the second essential of being a real Christ follower is a matter of remembering that every time you come to one of these moments, every time your life boils up and you reach a moment where something else seems to be competing, something else seems to be vying for your affection, something else seems to be saying that it's greater than Christ, you say, no. Behold the Lamb of God who is the center of my life. And whatever it is that has competed has identified itself so you can put it away. So you can kill it. So you can be done with it. So Christ can live on the throne of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, following Jesus in a personal relationship is all about life change through personal engagement. Let me give you a quote that has served me so well and served so many so well through the years. It's a quote from Jim Elliott. He was a famous missionary to the Inca Indians who ended up being killed by them, but because of his death by them, the whole tribe and many others came to know Christ. Many of you have heard of his story through the documentary and the subsequent movie called The End of the Spear. Here's what he said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, his life, to gain what he cannot lose, his salvation. And what he means through that quote is clarified through another quote that he uses. That God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. See, some of you are wondering 
about God's love for you today. Some of you are wondering if what God is telling you to do, if where he's leading you to go, you're wondering if the costs that you are counting are worth it. And what this man's testimony tells to us is that God always gives his best to those who leave the choice to him instead of trying to take control of it. That's what I like to do. I feel so in control when I have control of my life. But I always find that it's so out of control when that is true. And I have to release and recalibrate my heart and my mind and my life to Jesus Christ. Have you counted the cost in your life, friends? Listen, Jesus gave up everything to save us. His love compels us to follow him. But you need to understand, following Jesus will cost you everything. Many things he will leave with you because he wants to use it for his kingdom. He created you and designed you the way that you are because his intention for you was to use you that way in this world. So your strengths, your giftings, your passions, your desires, the things that he completely redeems in you, he's done that. And listen to me, look at your life, look at everything that you have, all of your treasure, all of your time, all of your talent. You have it for one reason, because God, Christian, has left it with you to use for his purpose. The point is not to just throw everything off and go sit on a street corner and become a beggar, but it's rather to go, God, this is the life you've given me. I am looking now. That's that internal unction, the Spirit of God saying, hey, I want to use you. And you looking out into the world and going, where are you at work today, God? I'm about to enter in and I want to bring all of this to bear. And sometimes God makes us move it all in and sometimes he just brings one little encouragement or something something that we can do with our lives to be used in that moment. But the point is, when you get to that moment, when your salvation culminates itself, and it is time for your life to be recalibrated, sometimes in a moment and sometimes one moment for the rest of your life, will Christ be on his throne? Or will you? Or will you? I'm going to stop there for today. Let's pray together.